This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. 
Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 371 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kevin Briggs. Now, Kevin is also known as the guardian of the Golden Gate Bridge, as the CHP officer who patrolled the bridge and was able to dissuade numerous people through his career from taking their own lives off that particular structure. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, battling cancer, the communication lessons he's learned through his career when facing someone who's contemplating suicide, and so much more. Before we get to this discussion, as I say every single week, if you could just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for people looking for a project like this to find it. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you take a moment and share each and every one of these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Briggs. Enjoy. Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time this evening to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Uh, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Petaluma in Sonoma County, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, about half hour or so. Brilliant. Well, before I get into the chronological route that I'd like to take, we just touched on you know the, the mental health issues that are going on at the moment. So before we get specific to your story, what has been your experience personally the last five or six months with what we've been going through? And then what have you witnessed in the the people around you? Well, I usually do presentations, live presentations, since I retired with the Higher Patrol back in 2013. And of course, those since March have stopped. I've done one since March, and that was with the FBI out in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago. So I've had to learn a new process of doing this, and one is is presenting online. So I've been doing that, just started doing that, 
and that's that's just me. You wonder what has been going on with the world as far as things. I I work as a mentor in the local schools of my town, so of course no kids are going to school there. They're doing that online. Uh, so so many things have changed for so many people, and of course a lot of folks have really lost their their jobs and what they did and their businesses. So you know a whole lot of things have changed in the past few months. Now, we, we touched on this briefly before I hit record. What is your observation of the angst that we're seeing, the, you know, the, the anger um, in the streets and, and the relationship between that and the actual mental health element? You know, I think we're seeing a lot there. I, see, I think we're seeing some bad people, some good people who have gone astray. It would be really interesting to sit down with some folks and have a chat with them. You know, sit down on a round table um, with some police, with some community officials, with some BLM folks, and really try to hash this stuff out. Because what we're seeing, this chaos that we're seeing, has just got to stop. Um, people are, like I said, they're losing their jobs. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their businesses. And now those buildings are being burned down to, you know, go on top of that even. So... I think we have a long ways to go as a society. Things need to change um, on both sides. They really do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about this project is I get to talk to so many people who, in most cases, where there's been a failure from, you know, an organization, a governing body, whatever it is, a political group to affect change, these Navy SEALs, these police officers, these, you know, citizens have taken upon themselves to make a difference. And so I'm very excited to talking to, you know, to, to have this discussion because, you know, what you ended up doing was in a way outside the realms of, of the, the traditional description of law enforcement. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I never thought in a minute that I would ever be presenting and presenting on mental illness and presenting at, at big time hospitals to doctors about this. Well, I'm a traffic cop. So this is way out of the realm of where I thought my life would go. But it went that way. And I kind of took a chance and went along with it. And it's been wonderful. And I've met so many nice people. Um, and I still continue, you know, now we're doing it online, presenting to law enforcement and negotiator seminars. And I just did a Jewish community and I did a big corporation in England. So very, very humbled and honored to be doing this. But, you know, people don't understand what is happening with folks out there and how many people we are losing to suicide and how each and every one of us, it starts with us. But then how can we help one another and how can we have that conversation? But I truly believe it. It starts with us. How are we doing? How are we doing compared to a couple months ago, compared to a couple years ago? Absolutely. Well, I just had a, a, a chance conversation with a, a friend I used to work out with in, in my CrossFit gym, and he moved down south, and he's a veterinary surgeon, which is the same thing that my father did. And we were talking, and he said that the veterinary um, profession has the highest level of suicides in the medical profession. So... Every time, you know, this subject is brought up, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, there's this facade of everyone being okay, and then you peek behind the curtain, and you realize, no, that, as you said, so many people are hurting, so many people need to, you know, we, we need to change the way we're doing things, because there's so much pain and turmoil behind the scenes. Exactly, and I have heard that about the veterinary profession also, and what a shame, I mean, that there's so many things going on throughout this world that 
you know, each and every one of us. But I tell folks, and I really believe this, start with ourselves. How are we doing? And then go on from there. And so many mental health professionals are suffering because they hear the stories, these agonizing stories of people uh, going through so many different types of trauma, maybe as a child. And then what has been going on, you know, with them throughout their lives. So they don't seek help. They think, oh, it's not going to affect me that much or I'm okay. But once we talk about it and bring it out in the open, they are suffering. They do need to get some help from someone who specializes in that for them. You know, because if I want to go to a mental health professional, I expect them to be on top of their game. But many times they're not because they've been through so much themselves here in the stories. So I equivalent that to law enforcement. They see so much that, man, you got to get some of these bricks off of your back. Especially when it comes to the older cops who, in our way of thinking, you handled it, you sucked it up, and then you went and you did the same thing the very next day. Well, this builds on you. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's going to build on you, and it can really take a toll on your life. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned childhood trauma, so I'd love to start at the very beginning. Where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I was born in San Francisco, raised in Novato, California, N-O-V-A-T-O. And my father had a printing business in San Francisco. Uh, one brother and two sisters. I'm the oldest. So we were upper middle income, had a great childhood. Everything was was fine um, up until when I went in the Army. And then, then we took a turn. So at 18 years old, two months out of high school, I went in the Army. And then I was stationed over in Germany in my second year. And while I was there, I was 20 years old. I was diagnosed with cancer, testicular cancer. And mind you, people didn't talk much about cancer back then. Uh, and we certainly didn't talk about testicular cancer. And being just a, a private in the Army, you don't really question much. So, And not a whole lot was told to me. But I had my first operation there. And then sent back to the United States, landed back in the U.S. on my birthday, which is December 5th. And then I was over at uh, San Francisco in the military hospital there in the Presidio, where I spent several months, had a couple more operations and several months of chemotherapy. But, you know, at just 20 years old, hitting 21 years old, having this diagnosis of cancer. So that's that was a tough one. Yeah. So what were your positive coping mechanisms that got you through that particular test, as it were? Having folks around me, having my family and then having being back home and having that friends around, they would come and visit me in the hospital. And then uh, even though I was in the army, they still let me go home. So I did. A, I was able to spend a lot more time at home, which was just about a half an hour or so away from the city. So that helped tremendously in dealing with this. But that chemotherapy, well, I remember that being brutal. I lost a lot of weight, went down to about 135 pounds, thrown up almost every day, lost all my hair. So, you know, chemo's tough. And when you're young, they give you the, the big dosages of it. So I was on three platinum-based drugs, but it worked. You know, every single time I would go through a course of chemotherapy, they would do blood tests and the tumor markers for my type of cancer would significantly go down every time I would complete a course so we could see it was it was doing its job. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned about being in the Army. So what made you transition out of that? 
you know, when I was getting out was about the same time it would have been three years of me getting out of the army anyway. So I decided to do that. And, and I really wanted to get into law enforcement. thought that might be cool. Didn't really know how to get into it. But I had a, a brother-in-law who was San Francisco Police Department in there. And he said, hey, apply for San Francisco PD. And he goes, corrections is usually hiring also. So I wanted to get my foot in the door. So I put in for state corrections. And actually, I was hired um, by state of California for corrections. And I worked at San Quentin State Prison for a while. Now, did you ever come across a um, San Francisco police officer called Mark Foreman? I know the name. Okay, because he um, he ended up becoming he he retired from police and actually became a counselor himself. So it's an interesting kind of intersection there. Yes, yes, I do. I do know the name. Brilliant. All right. So then you well, first tell me about your your academy experience. You know, had your army training served you well entering the the law enforcement profession? It it did. You know, back then, I don't know what it is now, but I went in in January of 1987 into corrections, and it was only six weeks. Um, and I spent three years in corrections as a correctional officer. And one of the guys I was working with when I was at San Quentin said he was going to go out for the highway patrol, and he wanted me to go with him. And I'll compare the academies here in a second. But I go, I don't think I can do this. Boy, these guys, every time I see a highway patrolman, which wasn't very often, they looked all squared away. They looked like really they knew what they were doing. And I said, I don't know if I can do this. But I went through the process and I made it in. And the, the academy was six months long, a living academy up in Sacramento. So six months compared to six weeks. But actually, the six weeks academy, six week academy for corrections, I thought was tougher. But went through the uh, Highway Patrol Academy, graduated fourth, very, very lucky to, to make it through that. And started my career with the California Highway Patrol in 1990. Brilliant. So, when it comes to mental health, you had you know entering corrections and then entering you know, law enforcement as a, a patrolman. Was there any exposure to any sort of discussion on mental health at that point? Not that I recall. No, and especially talking to someone, you know, on the job, so to speak, about it. Someone who may be suicidal or contemplating suicide. I don't remember anything like that. So obviously, you know, you, you were assigned to the Golden Gate Bridge uh, at a certain point. Prior to that, though, were there any significant incidents that you remember before that became your detail? Uh, nothing so much on the job. Um, for me personally, I lost my mom in 1989 when I was working at San Quentin. She uh, was diagnosed with cancer, lung cancer from smoking. And she was starting to go through chemotherapy, but I don't think it went well for her. And she stopped it. And subsequently, that cancer went through her body. She was bedridden for quite some time, and she died at our family home. Uh, I closed her eyes. We see her last breath, and we talk about contributing factors to a mental illness. Boy, this is a big one, losing your mom. She was just 49 years old at the time. And I used to think, well, that's, you know, that's fairly old. She had a good life. But now I'm 57, 49 is, is nothing. No, absolutely not. Well, actually, I, I had the same experience with my grandfather. And he was 99, so he had a, a very full life. But he got bladder cancer. Um, and, you know, at the end, he was a jaundiced skeleton. But it was the same thing. I mean, I held his hand while he took his last breath. And it's, it's a beautiful moment to be there. But it's definitely a traumatic moment as well. It really is. Yeah, it's tough to go through. 
but we try to be there for those people. So Exactly. All right. Well, then, then walk me through the very first time that you encountered someone who was suicidal then. Yeah, I've been on the force for a few years. I was, I was actually stationed for several years first out of the academy over by Oakland, a town called Hayward. A lot of nice folks, but a lot of gangs and violence and stuff there too, until I was able to get back to Marin, where, which is my hometown, and the Marin area. Uh, handles the Golden Gate Bridge. So when I first started working down there, I get this call of a woman over the rail. And the rail's only about four foot tall on the bridge. And I respond down there. And I, I remember some of this, but uh, in going up to speak with her, part of me is in cop mode. And I'm thinking, you're a trespasser over there. What, what the hell are you doing? And the other part of me is, well, this is somebody who's thinking about contemplating suicide, jumping off. So I didn't know how to react, what to say, what to do. I was a mess. And for several times, we would I would handle four to six cases a month working down there of folks who were suicidal. And until I was able to get a little training and talk to some senior officers, I said and did about everything wrong, I think. But I did have empathy and I did care. And I think they could see that in my eyes. So I never lost someone for, for quite a few years who actually left in front of me. But it was really, really tough to to see that, the pain in people's eyes. To me, they wanted to live. They just couldn't get past the pain that was that they were going through. Well, I had uh, Kevin Hines on the show, and, and one very powerful moment he talked about, and he does in, in the Suicide the Ripple Effect, his documentary as well, was the fact that he was in tears, distraught on the bridge. And, and I think, you know, to paraphrase, he said, if anyone had asked me if I was okay, I never would have jumped, but they, you know, I think he even talked about someone asking him to take a picture of them on the bridge and then they walked away again, totally oblivious to his state. So, you know, talking about that compassion, how, how important is it to actually really look at people? And it sounds like a silly question, but, but that, that disconnection that we have, especially with social media now, how, how many lives could be saved if we actually saw each other the way we're supposed to see each other? Right. I think the more than 48,000 people that we lose every year to suicide in this country would go down dramatically. But then again, when you look at folks, uh, they look at it as a weakness, so to speak. And then if you ask someone who you have no clue about, Hey, are you okay? You don't know what's going to happen to you. So it's also self-preservation. There's a lot of factors that go into play in this. So you mentioned about trying all the wrong things first with all the best intentions. So what are now with, with your experience, some of the, the bad things to say to someone in crisis? Sure. So I stay clear of these few things and I've memorized them and I just hound them into myself. But you should calm down. I understand things will get better. Try to stay clear of those. So can you imagine being in the darkest place in your life? And let's say you're on, on the bridge and you're over the rail and it's really cold out there. Um, you're not dressed for it. You're in a T-shirt and, and shorts or something, no jacket. And it's starting to get dark out and it's just freezing cold. And you have this guy walk up to you. And you start chatting with them and the guy goes, well, you know what you should have done? Whoa. You know, you slapped them in the face. 
you're looking for somebody who's caring, who may not have the answers, but at least could be there for you and offer you some kind of hope. What's the hope that would make you want to live and come back over that rail? So by me saying, you know what you should have done, I think it just kicks them in the teeth. But we, I can say, you know, have you tried this? Because many times I think folks at that stage of the game, it's like a horse with blinders on. They're just seeing a very narrow scope. What I try to do is expand that and take those blinders off. Of course, I'm not going to be able to fix anything more than likely, and I don't try to. But just by being there for someone can make a, a big a world of difference. All right. Let's talk about calm down. Yeah. So someone's in that very, very dark place, and I go, hey, 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 hey calm down. And they're screaming at me because they don't want me to come closer or anything else. They want to be left alone. Calm down. And I'm yelling back at them. Calm down. Has anybody in the history of telling someone to calm down ever calmed down? It works on my wife every time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it just doesn't work. Whoa. I try to step back and say, hey, I'll, I'll stay back here. I just want to come up and chat with you. You know, if they're yelling at me or, or whatever that may is, okay, we take it. Take it in. Take it all in and see why are they yelling at me? What is going on? So I try to stay clear of telling people to calm down. Um, if I tell someone also, I understand. I totally get where you're coming from. I've been there a thousand times. I think it's another kick in the teeth because I've been through some things. I've had head injuries. I had the cancer and then losing my mom. I have three stents in my heart when I was around 48 years old. Uh, all sorts of stuff, trauma and things. But I think we all have to some degree. So for me to say I understand, no, maybe someone just has one thing that's really, really heavy. Maybe they lost a loved one and they just can't get past it. But for me to say I understand, I think uh, it slaps them, slaps them in the face. So I try to stay clear of that. But we can use that as part of our active listening skills and a summary to find out what's going on. You know, so if I understand you correctly, this is what's been happening. So I can use it like that. And also telling someone things will get better. I don't know that. A mental health professional told me about this one. And I go, man, I don't feel comfortable saying that. Because if things don't get better and they come back up to this bridge, what am I going to say? You know, be all, Kevin, you told me things are going to get better. They're all worse. Things are worse ever than, the, than they've ever been. What am I going to tell them? Well, I, I thought it would get better. I lied to them. But I can tell them, you know what, when you come back over the rail, you have the opportunity for things to get better. Absolutely. Now, one area that I've just found as a common denominator from people like Kevin who either have physically, you know, gone through the act of taking their lives or have been stopped the last minute by a close friend or whatever it was, is that feeling of being a burden to their family. So, the traditional, you know, reasoning that, that you and I would talk to each other right now in our state of mind doesn't seem like it would work and almost like, as you said, inflame the situation. So when people say, you know, think of your family, that could be the, you know, the wrong thing in that situation because they are thinking of their family. I'm a burden to my family. So if I jump from this bridge, I'm going to take away for their pain. The reality is obviously you're going to double the pain that they're, they're feeling, but, you you see this complete distortion of the brain, whether it's through you know mental ill health, you know sleep deprivation, you know whatever it is that's gotten to that point. 
Um, so what are some of the things that you use to someone who's, whose brain is lying to them so much that ending their life, you know, just ending the gene pool, as it were, is their only option, which is the complete opposite of basically everything in nature. Right. You know, and this is kind of the golden egg. What can we talk about to give them a little ray of hope? Uh, maybe kids, if they have kids. Can you tell me about your kids? That's a big one. Is there somebody in your family that you do get along with? And did you did you take trips with them? You know, when, was, when were you happier? What was a happier time in your life? And why was it happier? So what can we talk about to bring kind of a rainbow to this? Nothing that we can change that's going on. And sometimes folks like to talk about why they don't like people in their family. They treated me like this, like this, like this. And sometimes people think that they're just full of crap. You know, their family members, oh, they'd never do it. They just talk a good story. Okay, well, they're messing up is what they're doing. But you're right. You know, we're not going to talk about the negative parts of the family if I can, if I can help it. And I'm not going to get someone to chat with them on the phone because it may be just, hey, I hate you, goodbye, and then they jump. But I want to bring them to a happier time in the past if they're willing to talk about it. And kids play a big role in this. Tell me about your kids. Also, what are their hopes and dreams prior to all this happening? And what are they responsible for? That could be a big part of this. So another thing that we hear a lot, kind of in our profession, basically, as we are slowly starting to be educated on what we should do, let's say for a firefighter in a crisis. Now, they may not be standing on the other side of the bridge, which, you know, is is a pretty clear sign that they're thinking about suicide. But we we hear terms like, you know, are you thinking of, you know, taking your own life? Have you made a plan? Those kind of things. So say hypothetically for a moment, we're not standing on the edge of a bridge. What are some of the, the questions that people should ask if they suspect a partner, a loved one, whatever it is, is in crisis? So let's just say someone has been isolating themselves, which is a big indicator. They were taking a medication for mental illness and they've stopped it and they've stopped all their medications for whatever that may be. They don't want to chat. You used to have coffee three times a week. They don't want to come out anymore. Um, maybe they lost a loved one or they're getting divorced. They lost their job. So all these things can can have a spiraling down and you want to check on them. Maybe they're not suicidal. Maybe they're just going through a very, very tough time. So where can we have this conversation? I'm going to tell you, have this conversation where that individual is comfortable and hopefully not a coffee shop or a park surrounded by a lot of people because you're wanting them to break down if need be. And a person is not going to break down in front of a whole bunch of people and it's crappy to put them in them situation. Don't have barriers between you. If, if it happens to be on the job and you're a manager, supervisor, and you have to call them into the office, this is the only place that you could have this conversation. Get out from behind that desk. That safe zone. And I tell this to anybody, a doctor, anybody in the mental health profession, because I've seen it and happened to my own boy. Get out from behind that desk and have that conversation with that person one on one without a barrier between you and ask them, hey, bro, I've been seeing all this. I've been hearing all these things. I want to let you know I'm here for you and see what they say. You know, man, if they were willing to tell you about what's been going on or, you know, these things for a fact. And I know you're going through a really tough time. It's got to be just heartbreaking for you to have to go all through this and validate what they're going through and then normalize their situation is a big one and say something to the effect of, you know what, all the stuff that you've been going through and anybody that's been going through all those different things, 
they may be thinking about killing themselves. Have you been thinking about suicide? And let them answer. That's a great way of asking that question. It's a crappy thing. The whole thing sucks. But we want to find out. And they may say, oh, I'd never think of such a thing. Never think. It wouldn't cross my mind. But you're, the hair on the back of your neck is standing up. And you're just getting this feelings like, ah. And could they be angry? Well, they're probably madder than hell at you. But so what? I would much rather have them mad at me and hear than me not taking the time to talk about it and then gone. So we can go through this again. It says, man, it just looks like you're going through a really miserable time. And I want to let you know you don't have to go through this alone. I'm here for you. If you've been thinking about suicide, man, you can talk to me about it. Okay? And, and then see what they have to say. And one thing is, when they're speaking, let them talk. Don't interrupt them. As long as they're chatting, you're going to get more information. It's fantastic. Let them speak as long as they want to because they're venting. And that always helps. But if they happen to say, you know what? It has crossed my mind. All right. Have you made a plan? Do you have a date? Find out more. And if it looks like, wow, they're really thinking about doing this and doing it tomorrow or something. And we need to get some help. So there's no shame in calling the 1-800-273-TALK. We can do that even if you're not suicidal to get some help because maybe we don't have all the answers. And then, you know, if it comes right down to it, calling 911, getting an officer out there. More and more officers are getting trained in crisis intervention training and can handle these types of situations. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that because, I mean, you know, we have these conversations kind of um, – uh, hypothetically you know and it's hard to to really get a lot of in because not many people have been exposed to a lot of suicide but with you know 200 cases in in your particular career um you know you're definitely an incredible resource thank you you know and it's brutal i mean I, it, it's hard to have a more brutal conversation than this but if we don't and i mean man we're just going to continue to lose more and more people and, you know, look what's going on today. People are confined to their houses a lot of times. And without things and different avenues to take up their time, they get depressed and things start going downhill. You know, maybe we do Zooms more. Call your call your parents and do a Zoom with them. Call your friends. Hey, every Friday night at 8, we're going to have like a wine Zoom or something. We have a glass of wine or a beer and we're just going to chat. If that's the best that we can do, then let's do that. Absolutely. Well, um, with, as I said, 200, you know, uh, opportunities to save and 200 discussions, did you find any common denominators that seem to be, you know, a handful of reasons that would normally drive people to that point? Uh, I did see three different things that I would notice almost every single time up there. And we talked about it a bit. People felt like they were a burden to their families. They suffered from a mental illness, whether diagnosed or not. And if they were taking a medication for a mental illness, they stopped it. That's, that's three things that I saw almost every single time up there. So I tell folks at ground level, you know, these are things that we need to, to watch for. If people, and I'm, whatever medication they may be taking, and I never baited them, are you taking a medication for a mental illness? I would never say that. Are you, you know, I would tell them, are you taking medication for anything or have you stopped any medications? whether that's aspirin for your heart or whatever else. But these are the things that uh, that I saw up there almost every single time. 
Now, with that many attempts, and I know the the documentary, I think was it the bridge? Is that what it was called? Um, Correct. The they showed the the cameras looking on the bridge, and and all the kind of near misses, and sadly some of the actual suicides. But did did your detail shift focus as a patrolman on that particular stretch to focus on that particular issue? I'll be honest, perfectly honest with you, no. I was actually advised it's secondary. So, and that, and that was a shame. And mind you, up until that tragedy in 9-11, there was only one officer working down there for the whole bridge down into San Francisco, up and over the Waldo Tunnel, and, and a few miles north. So we handled that, plus it was a huge area to handle for just one officer. Um, so I would handle for a very, very long time four to six cases a month of folks like this, whether that be in the parking lots or on the sidewalk or on the bridge itself. So it turns out to be, you know, for 10 years or so, four to six people a month. That's a lot of individuals. That is. I mean, most people listening probably don't get four to six structure fires a month as, as a firefighter. Yet we, you know, are training for that every day and, and driving equipment that's ready for that. So that really does, you know, put that in perspective. Right. And and the thing is training. I didn't have training for quite a long time. And finally, I was able to go through crisis intervention training and way later in my career, almost to retirement before I went through the FBI crisis negotiator school, which was I was one of the very few to be able to do that. Uh, it was awesome. It was really, really cool. I learned a lot. I wish I could have been able to go through that school you know, way early in my career. It would have helped me tremendously. Now, uh, expanding on that. And so what elements did you learn in that class that you wish you had at the beginning? A lot more how to approach folks. And mind you, when you go through a crisis negotiator school, it's not just speaking to someone face to face on that. It's maybe you're dealing with a bank robber. Maybe you're dealing with a terrorist out on a boat. So it's all these different types of situations. But we really get into active listening skills. Um, and we focused a lot of time on that. And now I have this opportunity. I just went there uh, three, three weeks ago to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. and gave a talk there. My only in-person one since March. But it's really, really cool to get to speak with negotiators. So I will share my stories like I am now. And then they will come up, another individual will come up, and we get to share these stories and learn from each other. So I wasn't even aware of negotiator conferences when I was with the patrol. I could have learned so much, or we could have other officers go and then bring back that information. So, you know, if there's officers out there, um, and even those first responders, if they can get a chance to go through these types of seminars and things, you learn so much. But if you don't know about it, you don't even know they existed. So... It's very important to be to be trained. Well, it seems very applicable at the moment. You know, there's a, there's a couple of conversations that I'm hearing a lot from the experts I had on the show when it comes to law enforcement uh, specifically. So one is the kind of jujitsu style um, defensive tactics training, so they can avoid you know deploying weapons. And then the other thing is is even a click before that, which is just de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. So it seems like the skills that you maybe got towards the end of your career may be the skills that every new officer and, you know, officers currently working should have as well. Right, right, exactly. If you or anybody has a chance to go through active listening skills and to be taught that, I mean, it applies to every time, whether you're looking to get a loan, where you're trying to get your kids to do their homework, uh, whatever it may be. 
So they help so much in understanding human nature and how to react and what to say and kind of what not to say. Brilliant. Well, expanding on something that I personally know has had an impact on me in a negative way um, as a firefighter and a paramedic is the inability to save. And there's, you know, so many that I've had in my career that, you know, unlike Hollywood, where they just jump up and give you a hug, they didn't make it despite all of our efforts. And you touched on some of the suicides that you weren't able to dissuade. So tell me about, you know, if, if you're, you're okay talking about it, any that kind of spring to mind and, and then the impact that it had on you. You know, one gentleman, um, African-American, around 30 years old, uh, he was up over the rail of the Golden Gate Bridge. And we got there and I'm with two other seasoned officers and generally just one of us will speak. Um, if And if it looks like I tell folks, if I'm not making a connection, I'm going to get somebody that can. So that's a big one when I talk to negotiators, if you have enough people in your department. Well, this guy was talking with me, but the two other officers would talk to this gentleman also. And I think that was a big downfall. Always have just one. If you can't, you know, if you're not making that rapport and developing that rapport, get somebody else in there, whether it's female, whether another race, whatever that may be, if you can. But we chatted for a while, but he would not tell me his name. He wouldn't tell me what was going on and why he was over the rail. But we talked about day-to-day events and, may, and some sports and things. But what he did is he turned around, and I had the opportunity to grab him, but I did not. Um, there's reasons for that. But he turned around and he shook my hand three times. And on the third time, he turned around. And mind you, I try to personalize everything. But he wouldn't tell me his first name, but I was just Kevin. I'm not Sergeant Kevin Richard Briggs and Highway Patrol. I'm just Kevin. So he said, Kevin, thank you very much, but I have to go now. And he jumped. So after the third time he shook my hand, you know, he jumped. And another thing I did is I watched him go all the way down because I want to mark the body because we lose a lot of bodies and, and the water's there. It's very, very treacherous. Um, some things that I tell folks and, and for, for your audience here of first responders, whoever that may be, I will tell you, if you can avoid watching the act, if you're there with an individual and they have a gun to their head and that looks like it's imminent, they are going to pull the trigger. If you could turn your head and not watch that act, if that person jumps off a building or a bridge, not watch that individual fall. It's going to be so much better for you later on in life because what you see, you know, you can't take that back. So I see the gentleman falling and that's what's in my head. Not my time talking to him, but him falling that 220 feet down. And I'm just basing that on multiple times of seeing events like this, what it has done to me um, and what it can do. You know, when you get up to retirement age, you want to be able to, to live a long and healthy life. But these things can really mess with your head. So I will tell you, if you can turn away from that instance, um, if at all possible, that will help you in the future. But this gentleman jumped. I watched him go all the way down. You know, and then another thing that I do here is kind of a, a secret or I don't know, secret, but just me, me talking out here is if I'm speaking to someone and they jump off that bridge for in this case and scenario, I'm done. I'm now a witness. I could, don't go down to the docks. The Coast Guard picks up the body and goes, takes them to the dock right by the bridge there. Um, I'm done with it. I don't go down to the docks and see the body because to me, it's 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 a little bit of a failure in me. What could I have done different? So I when I teach negotiators, I tell them, if you lose someone, 
if you have the manpower, you're done with it now. You're a witness. Somebody else goes and handles that case and they just come up and talk to you and get your statement. And I think that helps. Don't go down and see that body. You don't need to see that. Have another officer, have another fireman, whatever that may be, go down and get the information that you need. Yeah, there's definitely an element, I think, especially when we're early in our career where we feel like we need to see the trauma. And uh, there was a very specific event um, I had in my career where it was a, a grotesque car accident. It was a, a couple. Um, the boyfriend in the front seat was killed, and then the three-year-old girl in the back was decapitated. And the engine crew that arrived first had thrown a, a rug over her head, like a blanket. And we we it was a body recovery by that point she was trapped in the back so we went back to our station waiting for the coroner to be ready and then we went back to we were called back to go and extricate and the captain and the engineer were both pretty much almost done with their career they're about to retire and my partner and i were literally like two three years on on that department and they basically dfo'd us to stay at the station and I'll never forget, he said, your your Rolodex of memories is already going to be full with everything that you see. You don't need to add memories to that file. And so when we think about it as leaders, whether it's officers or just, you know, medic partners, whatever it is, ask yourself, does my crew actually need to witness this? I mean, I've been on multiple suicides, you know, and confirming, um, you know, that someone is deceased. That it's such an important point. If we don't need to be there, do not go there because it may seem fine when you got one year on, but when you got twenty-one years on, it's a very different story. I agree with you one hundred percent. They do pile up, and you have all this trauma, and it can take a big effect on your quality of life, and your sleep, and how you treat other people. You know, but if you have seen that, and and many of us that go through our careers, we've seen a lot. Ask other people, how do you think I'm doing? You know, ask your ask your significant other. You ask your kids, how do you think I'm doing? How do you think I am compared to five years ago? Sometimes that's a big indicator if we don't see it ourselves. And if you need to get some help, if you look at a plan and says, you know what, I'm seeing these different things and all that, it's no weakness. I'm going to tell you as someone who's been through two different medications for depression and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR therapy, I didn't want to do anything. I've had these macho jobs where you don't show a weakness, but it can eat you up. And I was the guy, the big bodybuilder guy who, who refused treatment. But once I opened my mind and I said, you know what? I got heart issues and cholesterol and all this other stuff. I started doing some meditation. Would never have thought about that. That really, really helped. I went and went through a psychiatrist and did this therapy. That helped tremendously. But you got to be willing to do it and give into it. Absolutely. Well, just a quick question. Did you tend to work the daytime or the nighttime? Um, I worked swing shift. So actually, when we were on eight hours back in the day, I worked from two till 10, two in the afternoon till 10 at night. Okay. So you were at least able to go to bed every night? Yes. Okay. Because I mean, you're probably aware. I mean, one of the things that I see now as busy as so many departments are, as understaffed as so many departments are, is that you take what we've talked about today and then you add sleep deprivation in and you've just amplified everything. It really does. Yes. I, I was lucky. I did have to do about a year and a half of graveyards when I promoted to sergeant because you go back down to the bottom. Um, and I'm not a graveyard guy. Those are brutal. Oh, 
Yeah, absolutely. I retired, so <laughs> I get to sleep now. So, um, well, you touched on something, and I know again in in um, the bridge they kind of showed this for a moment. But you mentioned, you know, th- these bodies have to go somewhere, and they end up in the water at the base of the bridge. And so you have these Coast Guard members that are in the pilot boats down there recovering these bodies. So, have you had any discussion with those men and women, and you know how that affects them? I have, and I've heard from some of their like warrant officers and the guys in charge, you know, it's brutal on those guys because most of those folks are very young, 18 to 21, haven't seen things like this to show up in their boat and they're waiting. You know, if I get a call of a man over the rail or an individual over the rail, I may be speaking to them for 20 minutes, maybe for hours. Well, they're waiting that entire time. And they, if this individual jumps, they see that all the way down. They see the hit, they rush right over to it. They pick them up. Many times these individuals will still have a pulse or they're all broken up. So, you know, they're they're seeing some tough, tough stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing with Kevin's story. I mean, between him surviving the impact and then the sea lions that kept him afloat. I mean, you know, it, it's it's an absolutely mind-blowing story. Right. Yes. Right. Well, you mentioned about, you know, needing to seek help with your own mental journey. When did you start noticing that within yourself? You know, this was just... A few years before I actually retired, where I really took a deep look and said, you know what, man, there's so many things going on. And I'm just between my heart issue uh, and and me not sleeping well and having these kind of nightmares and different things going on. I said, you know what, it's, it's time to start talking about this. And I thought if I came out and talked about it um, – and if I got a diagnosis of some kind of diagnosis of some sort of mental illness as, as depression, maybe I'm going to lose friends. Maybe I'll lose my job. But I will tell you, none of that occurred whatsoever. Uh, and I've done a bunch of research on it, too. And if folks for as anyway, as far as law enforcement, and I'm probably very similar with the fire department. But for folks who have been this fitness for duty evaluations, they have like a, a 96 percent rate of going back to full duty. So very, very few are actually asked to leave their departments. Now, which you mentioned the MDR. Tell me some of the 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 um, tools that you use that did work, that, that were, you know, very helpful in facilitating your post-traumatic growth. So as far as me going through the, through or my quality of life, now what do I do? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, EMDR, any of those that you found were work very well. The EMDR was a trip. I had some trauma when I was just a kid, very, very young, and I would see a man's face um, when I was trying to, when I would go to bed at night, and it was like two inches from my face, and it was every single night, and it was absolutely brutal for me to try and sleep. So I tell my psychiatrist this, and she sends me over and says, you know what, I want, I want you to give this a try. Please go into it open-minded. So it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I still don't know a whole lot about it, but it is, it's pretty fascinating stuff. But I would go see this this therapist uh, once a week, and she would walk me through everything that happened. And it's something I really don't even talk about to this day, but we did talk about it there. And, and it really helped. She goes, Kevin, I cannot take that trauma away. But what we can do is work on getting that face so it's not right next to yours throughout the night and when you're trying to sleep it's way the hell out there 300 yards out there so you can get some rest and that's what it did but i had to open my mind and my heart to allow this to work 
you know, and and being this kind of type A cop that whenever a suspect speaks, they're lying and all this kind of stuff, what we're led to believe. Uh, it took a lot for me to open up. So but once I did, I started doing this meditation, uh, transcendental meditation, TM. That really helped. But once again, I had to open my mind and my heart to allow myself to do this. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, I have my first small dog, and people get a kick out of this when I show it to her. She's actually up in the room with me. But I've had big dogs all my life, Labradors and Weimaraners. Well, I wanted to have a dog, but I'm, prior to all this COVID, I was gone a lot. So I wanted a Doberman. But I got this little tiny chihuahua. She looks exactly like a Doberman, but like one-tenth the scale. <laughs> and we talk about stress. What do you do for stress? Well, by petting your dog or if you're into cats or whatever that may be, by petting your dog just 10 minutes a day can really help reduce the stress and lower the cortisol levels in us. And that's what this little dog does for me. So it, it needs to be a combo effect. What are you doing? People like to run. That really helps. I, I hate running myself. I don't run for nothing. But whatever that may be, whether that's going to the gym, uh, I have a, some friends that I get together with at least four times a week and we have coffee. And, you know, that really helps. And I'm not just talking about uh, telling them all my issues or nothing like that. No, we can talk about all sorts of stuff, hunting, fishing, cars, whatever it may be. So those types of things really, really do help. But you need to make time for them and you need to do them. And it depends on whatever you like. I know some people are very much into knitting, some uh, older ladies that I do, and they love their knitting. So whatever it is, but you need to find out what works for you. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Now, that's obviously, as you said, kind of once you're realizing that that there's an issue, or I mean, you should be doing it regardless. You should be having those positive elements, especially with things like EMDR. You know, you're addressing trauma once you've you realize it's there. A philosophy that I've kind of grown from all the things that I've learned with all these people that I get to talk to is a couple of things. Firstly, so many people in our professions, whether it's military, police, fire, EMS, corrections, are drawn to these professions, some of them because they were hurt themselves. So they want to become the protector. They were the victim. I've had so many people like, and you know, it just is is so saddening to see how many people were sexually abused, were, were beaten as children, were around addiction, you know, alcoholism, whatever it was. So one of the philosophies I have, so many agencies now, they spend a huge amount of money on polygraphs and then on these ridiculous psych tests where you fill in a thousand questions and, you know, it's like a trick. You know, and I always joke about this on, on the show, but it's literally, you know, do you like flowers? Do you like dogs? Do you like cats? Do you like molesting kids? Do you like trees? And you're like, whoa, whoa, what? What was that one? And so to me, what seems to be a much healthier alternative is to take that same money. You already have the budget there. Throw away the polygraph and, and the psych test. They're completely ridiculous. That's what the background check is for to see if it's a good candidate. And give these brand new recruits you know, three, five sessions of counseling. So if you do have trauma, then you can actually address it at the front door of highway patrol, of police, of fire, whatever it is. And then you also have a connection now with that counselor as you progress through your career. That's a great idea because I remember taking this test. And mind you, I think it's just like a stress vo or voice stress analyzer. We didn't have it when I went through either academy. Uh, they have it now. But I, I think that's a wonderful idea. I remember it was, what was it, 1,200 questions, a psych test? And I had to take it twice because, not because I failed it, 
Of course, people are laughing, but because uh, I had some liver issues from going through chemotherapy. So I had to have a liver retest done and it took so long. So it was like a year and a half to get these tests or whatever they needed that I had to go take this test again, this 1200 question test, whatever it was. And then I still had to go see the psych. So it was a long time. And that was, a, and that was many, and I remember those, some of those questions like, what is this? Uh, maybe it's big brains way past me that understand this, but oh my God, really? Come on. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I want to talk about one more individual specifically, and there's, there's a reason for this thing. It's very pertinent now as well, but I know you've mentioned it a lot in other interviews, but Kevin Berthea. So I've shared the the kind of goal cast type videos that they've done of this and that iconic picture of you, you know, leaning over talking to Kevin and he's in that the body language is just a broken man. He's got his head down, his hands, you know, in front of him. So tell me about that, because that, again, is the exact kind of image that we need to have at this moment with such a kind of anti-law enforcement rhetoric that's being, you know, that the toxicity is being spread at the moment. So that, to me, is a very iconic moment where it just shows two human beings regardless of their skin color. Well, it really was, you know, that took a, a quite a while for him to allow me to come up and even speak with him when I first got there. He was screaming at me. Don't come near me. Don't come near me. And I mean, he a lot. And a lot of times as photo people have seen in that photo, he's looking down. He didn't want anything to do with me. So it was quite some time. And all I do when I walk up to folks is I raise my hand, show them an open palm and say, hi, I'm Kevin. Is it OK if I come up and talk with you for a while? I want to get them empowered and I want to give them the opportunity to make some choices instead of just me in this uniform coming up and, and starting my business. So by them allowing me to come up so that way they know I'm coming up, I'm not scaring them. They see who I am in this uniform, but now I'm just Kevin. So finally, little by little, he did allow me to come up and speak with him. And like I said before, if someone's talking, let them talk. We use things like minimal encouragers, you know, just, wow, man, is that right? Really? Just these little things to keep them going where I'm not interrupting them. And for most of the time, I was actually below him. I wanted him looking at me eye to eye. So I was kneeling down. And mind you, try kneeling on concrete for a significant amount of time. It's brutal. But that was part of this. And I felt that's a that's a big part of this. So he told me kind of, uh, you know, a, a mini version of his life story. And it was just all the trauma that he had. And the feelings and the things that he put on himself for being a burden. Uh, he had suffered from a mental illness. He was adopted. His birth mother gave him up. His adopted parents loved him very much. But they divorced when he was around 13 or so. And it wasn't explained to him why they divorced. So he thought he caused this. He broke up the family unit. you know, And it, and it just broke him apart. But he was diagnosed with mental illness. And had been taking some medication, but stopped. And he thought, you know, as long as I stay busy, I'm good. It was only when he tried to sleep at night that he really suffered. So he just really would wear himself out every single day. He played six different sports sports, and would just run the gamut on these things and just really get to the point of complete exhaustion. And then he'd just pass out and try to get up the next day and do it all again. As long as he stayed busy, he was good. Did this all through school. But after this, he thought, well, what can I do now? And he thought, you know what? If I start a family, things are going to get better. 
So he had a child and his baby was born premature, a couple of months premature. So in his mind, what did I do to cause this? So he's beating himself up over this and baby had to stay in the hospital a while when his child was able to come home. So did a pretty hefty bill from the hospital for around $250,000 on top of all this, he just lost his job. He was laid off. So now he can't provide for his family. He's thinking he hurt his family. He's doing everything wrong. He's a burden to people. He's had enough. He lives over in Oakland, never been on the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's where he decided to go. So he had to get some directions and that's where he wound up. And that's where I was talking to him this whole time. So I just let him speak and speak and speak. And we were there about an hour and a half going through all this. And in my mind, I'm just playing it out. What could I do to give this guy some hope? Out of all of this stuff, you know, I started focusing on his child and well, tell me more about her. What's she like? What does she like to do? Uh, she likes sports because you're big into sports and what's your favorite sport? And she was very, very young, but I also found out that she had a birthday coming up. So I focused on that too. And I said, he allowed me to call him Kevin. And I said, Kev, don't you want to be here for her birthday? I go, brother, you can come back here anytime you want. Because I know if we can get folks past this particular crisis, a crisis, a big time crisis in their life, if we can get them past that many times, they won't attempt again. So I worked on that. I worked on the angle of his child and it was being truthful. And hey, Kev, you know, don't you want to be there for her birthday? And you know that if you jump, if you lose your life today, she has a much greater chance of suicide also. So I put that on there. I didn't want to say, hey, how could you do this to her? But I did say the fact of how do you think she's going to feel with you being gone? And then I gave him a break and I said, Kev, I'm going to step back and I'm going to give you some time to think about all this. But I don't want you to do anything until I come up here, come back up and, and speak with you. I go, can you agree with that? He goes, yeah, sure. So I stepped back, give him some time to think about all this. And during that time, he didn't look down at the water very much, which was a very good sign. He looked at me and then he would just kind of kind of a blank stare straight ahead. So I gave him just a minute or two. And then I asked him, Kev, is it OK if I come back up? He said, yeah. So I came back up and I said, what do you think, man? What do you think of everything going on today? And he goes, you know, I, I want to come back over. So that's about when this picture was taken that that some people have seen. Um, it's by a news helicopter out in the bay facing us towards the bridge there. And he came back over and then I asked him because I want to learn off of every single person. I asked him, Kev, what did I do that really helped this situation? And what did I do that wasn't so good? And he thought about it briefly and he goes, Kevin, he goes, you let me speak. You didn't provide me with a whole bunch of nonsense. You were there. You just listened to me. You let me speak and you listened. So that's what I tell folks. Why did it take this gentleman to get up to this stage four cancer of a bridge at times for somebody to listen? Why can't we do that right now with folks down at our homes, you know, and wherever we may be? It's absolutely amazing. And again, you know, it's you, you describe his early life. I mean, how many different layers of trauma are there from, you know, being adopted to the medical issues with the son, the financial elements, you know, I mean, all these different things, the, the mental health on top of that. And, and you mentioned about him filling his time. And that's something that I've noticed with our profession. 
there's those men and women that you notice always take the overtime. They work. And you, and you think to yourself, like, are you never with your family? Well, it was only when I started really being immersed in this kind of project that I realized that that's a, that's a bad sign. That's a warning sign. If people you know, keep just working and working and working. And I think even if you apply that to cell phones today, if you're constantly in your phone, why? Is it because it's distracting you because you don't want to actually think about the thoughts that are that really need to be addressed? I'm right there with you. Exactly. And and sometimes these folks that I go to coffee with, one guy, um, he's on his phone the whole time. I'm like, we're here. Look up. We're here. We're with you. Come on. Let's chat. So we see that quite a bit. It's it's just kind of the way things are right now. It doesn't mean it's right. I wish folks could bring their head up more and, and look at each other and have some conversations, look people in the eye. Absolutely. Well, tell me about Kevin. What's he doing now? You know, he's doing good. He's working full time. We talk probably every month or we chat, you know, in some way or we'll text. Um, we want to do some more work together. And I think we're going to be able to now once once we get past all this. But he was with a speaker's bureau and we just didn't click us working together very often. But we do get to get on stage together. and It's a lot of fun. No ego. We go for an hour or two hours. Uh, he's a really neat guy. I enjoy presenting with him. It's a lot of fun. And people, there's a lot of takeaways that folks get. So that's very, very important. But he's doing well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you transitioned out of CHP, and I know that sometimes that can be an issue as well. You know, especially in the fire service, you have these men and women that are in that crew, that station, whether it's, you know, four people or, you know, 12, 16, whatever it is. And one day those bay doors close and that tribe, that community that they had has now gone. And, and it's definitely one of those layers again of, 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 um, mental health challenges. So what was that like for you when you finally made the decision? And, and why did you make the decision as well to finally retire? Well, what happened was I was only 50 years old. Now, mind you, I could get um, not full retirement, but I can get full medical, which was very, very important. And after I started getting this press and this Guardian, the Golden Gate and all this stuff, I was beginning to get asked to go speak around the country. But my uh, really, really, really truthful what happened was my department said, no, you're not going to do that. So I really thought about this and I had some good mentors and they said, Kevin, this is bigger than you, man. This is bigger than the highway patrol. You have a good message. You can help a lot of people. So I really thought about this. I've been in government service all my life. I go, I don't know how to start a business. I go, I may be working at a coffee shop in two weeks. Who knows? <laughs> but I decided, I, you know, I retired, but pretty much I quit. I said, the hell with it. You people have been running my life forever. It's been a great career, great job, but I'm, I'm going to do it. I think you're wrong in your decisions. You know, I could represent the highway patrol and go all around and do some really cool work and then bring information back and teach others. And we could really do some cool stuff. But uh, in my opinion, since I was just this lowly sergeant, that that wasn't about to happen. So I now I get to do what I want when I want. Uh, and and it worked out well. You know, that's that's just the way it went. I enjoyed my time with the patrol. I'm glad I did what I did. I've, I've been uh, many places around the world. I've been to Malaysia, Germany, Australia, you know, all over doing these talks. And it's been very, very humbling. Met so many nice people. And then to get to sit in and listen to these other folks with these fascinating stories and learn a lot more about myself and how I can help others. So it's been really, really cool for me. Um, and mind you, I'm just a traffic cop. So to be able to do this is, is very fascinating. 
beautiful. Well, I mean, I can totally relate to that specific area because I'm just a fireman. And I, I think it's, you and I got to the same point where you realize you can just run one call at a time on your bike or for me and, you know, the rescue or the, the engine, or you can be the force multiplier and affect, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives with, you know, your presentation or a podcast or whatever it is. So I think, you know, for me and probably for you as well, I'm sure making the decision, say I am actively going to take control back of my life and do something good. I think that is a very powerful, positive thing for mental health. It really is, you know, and I, I didn't step into it blindly, but I really didn't know what I was stepping into either. But I thought, you know what, for me, for the time right now, I think it's the best thing to do. And if I can get the word out there and help some other folks, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And then here we are having this discussion. So it's brilliant. <laughs> um, so another thing we got in common, my little boy, kind of the end of last year, beginning of this year, went through some mental health challenges. You know, he was getting very depressed and through some very, very poor decisions by his school and local law enforcement ended up in a, uh, being Baker Act in a, you know, in a psych facility for three days at a time, twice. Um, neither of those were actually warranted. He wasn't a danger to himself, wasn't threatening, just to basically just blurted something out one time and was being asked why he was crying another time. So, I mean, horrendous mismanagement. But regardless, um, you had talked in other interviews that I've listened to about um, your son having those same struggles. So tell me about how that was for you, especially with the background that you have in that world. So here I am going to a, a lot of different countries speaking and traveling around the United States, but I'm missing what's going on at home. And this is what I tell people about. You want to do the overtime. We're chasing the buck. We want to help people. But are you really seeing what's going on with you? And are you seeing what's going on at home? And I miss things. And it turns out my boy, my oldest boy out of the two, he was 14 at the time. He was suicidal. And actually, uh, he did some non-suicidal self-injury. He actually cut himself because he was in such emotional pain about his life and, and the way he thought it was going. So I didn't realize this and I didn't learn about this till way late in the game. And I was able to, to finally go through a mental health professional. But when we went to see the mental health professional through his questioning, and I was in the room at the time, he did not validate my boy. He did not normalize his situation. He didn't do any of this, but he sat back in the chair and then his way of questioning my boy whether he was suicidal or not was he kind of told him, well, Kevin, well, you're not suicidal, right? Well, of course, a little kid's going to say no. It was a terrible experience. And I had a chance to speak with this mental health professional afterwards. Um, many, many states still don't have laws on the books that require suicide assessment training for mental health professionals. I know it's getting better. And I speak with law or excuse me, mental health professionals all the time who are highly trained in this and know what to do. But this guy, he, he escaped it. But we had a very nice conversation, a very civil conversation after the fact. And we did stay with him and Kevin went through some therapy with him and then some group therapy. He's doing better. He still struggles, but he's in college and, and he is doing better. But I tell folks, man, I, I missed it. And I'm the guy going out here teaching this stuff and it's happening right in front of my face. This poor little kid is suffering. So I tell folks, you know, really watch your family, watch yourself, be careful with your family, make sure you folks are doing good. And then we can talk about everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And what I found, you know, through our experiences were 
in this particular area in Ocala and Marion County, the local, um, you know, mental health facility is being used just to, to, you know, shrug responsibility. So while my son was in there both times, there were, I mean, I'm not joking, four or five kids cycled through in the three days that he was there from the same school, a middle school, wow. yeah, 12 years old. So, you know, that's another thing that we really have to look at. These, these, uh, School resource officers have no no fucking idea what they're doing in my area. I'll tell you that now, and I'll use that word, you know, for a reason. And then the the teachers as well. When I called his school in this particular incident, the the principal deliberately wouldn't let me what was going on until he was already at the facility. They kept me out the conversation. So that's another thing that we have to really address. Is as you mentioned, you know, it it's hard enough for us, you know, as parents who know our kids well. So we have to make sure that the human beings that we trust with our children's safety also have that level of training that they're able to make these decisions or call in experts who actually can make decisions before they lock a child in a facility for three days and take their shoelaces and you know they try and sleep while you know kids are crying in the other rooms. Exactly. Totally agree. And I've seen now that I've been working at the schools, the same sorts of things happening with some folks, with some crisis teams who come in who are supposed to be trained in suicide assessment. Um, There's a lot of work to be done in suicide assessment. I got to tell you, we we have a lot of work to do. It's getting better, but I'd like to see some some laws enacted to where, you know, more and more training is required of folks. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as we said, we're seeing a lot of mental health challenges at the moment. Our, you know, our addiction epidemic is a clear, you know, red flag for that. So with you having such a background, not only, you know, in the, the mental health world, but obviously in the law enforcement world, what are some of the, the things you think that we can do as a culture, as a nation to improve some of these problems? You know, I think a big thing in schools is talking about this. And not just suicides, but mental health. How you feeling? How you doing? We all know that that hey, you gotta suck it up sometimes, and we gotta get things done. You know, we need to to be able to take a hit. But if it comes down to it, and we're not sleeping well, and things are really going bad, we also need to be able to come out and say, you know what, things aren't going very well. I need some help. And also, everybody should be taught active listening skills. I think that's really, really important. How do we talk to people? That's, I think that would help tremendously because how many people, and I do this when I speak at colleges and lots of other places, how many of you have had a, an actual class in active listening skills on how to talk to someone? Very, very few. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, to be completely honest, starting this podcast, you know, which I fell into by accident, I, I've been on a four-year journey to try and be good at listening myself. You know, I mean, that's the thing is that if, you realize that we have a culture of people that want to get their their two cents in in a conversation. And you, you watch, we trip over each other, we interrupt each other, and learning just to shut the hell up, you know, and let someone actually finish their thought process is so powerful. It is, and I'm still working on it. I'm 57 and, and teach this stuff, but I tell you, I'm still working on it. I still have times where I interrupt people. I'm more the competitive listener, listener than the active listener, so... <laughs> It, I'm a work in progress. I'm the first one to admit it. But as long as we know that and we realize it, I think we can do you know much better, a little little by little, improving ourselves. 
Absolutely. Right. Well, then you wrote a book, Guardian of the Golden Gate. So tell me about, you know, when you decided to actually do that. And then, you know, was there a level of catharsis of writing it too? There really was. Um, and I did have a ghostwriter, which they're supposed to kind of you tell them the stories of what happened and they write it up and they throw in some adjectives and this and that. But with mine, I, I wound up staying up late at night most of the time when it was very peaceful in my place and writing it myself. I wrote, you know, a good 80 percent of the book. And then I would tell the, the stories on the other part. But I wanted it to show people adversity and what can happen and, and the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing about it. But then, like I've always tried to preach, what can we do for ourselves and what can we do to help others? So that was a big one. And just taking, for instance, my grandfather on my mom's side came from a very, very small town. He was an electrician in a lumber town and they had the electricity all turned off for the, for the, the street that he was working on in this very, very small town. But come five o'clock when all the people get off of the, the lumber, they're all the machinery and everything else out of the mill, they turn everything back on so the, the ladies back then could start dinner. Well, they didn't tell him and he didn't realize what time it was. He got burnt. He got it knocked him out. He actually they had to give him CPR, the whole thing. And he actually lost both of his arms and a lot of his health because of this. But he came back and he studied and he became a judge and he was a judge for a very, very long time. So you talk about a guy who would, could easily have given up and said, to hell with it. But these are the types of stories that really help folks. And they're true and they're real. And this is what happened to my family. And I think it happens with so many people. I think it can be easy to give up. It can be very difficult to keep driving on and driving on. But boy, it sure can be worth it. Absolutely. It's amazing how many incredible stories there are immediately around us you know I, I talk to these people from all walks of life and you start exploring you know early lives and they'll start tangenting off and you know you realize there's just there's so much strength out there so many colors to people's stories so many you know kind uh, excuse me stories of kindness stories of resilience and overcoming challenges and then you look at what's projected through so many channels on the tv and you're like why this is one of the issues. Like we're not even portraying real humans. You, you know, right at the moment we're portraying these small pockets of, of you know, anarchy that's going on and this this hatred. But then you open the front door in your community and none of that's happening. And there's there's these beautiful men and women and, and children who have these colorful lives. And that's where we need to get to these communities that we all came from, in our older tribes, villages, towns, whatever it was where you did know each other and you were there, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it takes a village. Um, you know, that's that's the concept we need to get back to because there are there are superheroes amongst all of us. There really is. And nowadays, I I tell folks, where's your front porch? Because like up at my grandmother's place, where my grandfather was a judge in this very, very small timber town, every single home had a porch. And my grandmother would tell me you know, when people wanted to visit, they would go out on their porch and other people walking by. And that's how we get you know, all these folks gathering together. Well, nowadays, we don't even see front porches on a lot of homes, at least in California. Don't they're boxing them all in. They're making them small. They're making the streets smaller. So I tell folks, where's your front porch? Where can you go and gather and talk to some friends? Where is that? Find a front porch for yourself. Absolutely. It's funny you say that. I, I had a, a visit from a friend, um, a fellow firefighter, and, you know, it, it was going to be a quick 
pop in and say hello and it ended up in a four hour conversation that went a lot deeper and some things that he really needed to get off off his chest that he's going through at the moment so yeah i mean you need that space you need that time you need to be present and just take a moment to as we said before be the person who sees that person on the bridge right absolutely absolutely and you'd be amazed you may not think that you need help or that you can suck it all in and you can handle it. You can carry the big load. But if you took the time to actually talk to someone and then heard what they were saying and not compare situations, you know, and, and all of that, but to be there for someone and then be allowed to talk about things that have happened to you, man, you're going to grow two inches that day. Absolutely. All right. Well, Kevin, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, so before we talk about other people's books, where can people find your book? My book is on Amazon, and then you can order it through your bookstore. At least that's what I've been told. Brilliant. All right. So then is there a book that you love to recommend written by someone else? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. You know, I would tell anyone, pick up a book that you don't have to sit there and learn everything by that's, that's like a scholastic book. Get something you enjoy. So if you're into honey, you know, get something like that. Just find something that you enjoy. Because so many times this world is all about making better, making the money, do this, gonna always studying. Find something that you enjoy that you can really dig into. If you, I, I like history, so I love learning about world history. That's kind of when I, you know, go to bed at night or something. That's what I like to do. Turn off all this internet and everything else, and have something like that that you enjoy. Love it. Yeah, especially our profession, firefighter and EMS together. There's so many things that we need to know that, yeah, it's constant textbook study. So, and they say that's terrible for you right before you go to bed. So it is, it is. But, you know, the, and things are always changing too. You folks got it tough. All right. So then the next question, is there a movie and or a documentary that you love to recommend? Now, I'm a big sci-fi guy. So anything science, science fiction, I'm big and, and it's going to sound weird. I'm telling you, but I, I love watching Bigfoot shows, that type of stuff. I'm de- that's what I'm into. It's weird, <laughs> but I like that. It's, I guess it's, you know, getting out of the realm of all the stuff that's going around with us. So I, I'm into the sci-fi bit. I enjoy that. Um, but I also, I just like history. Last night I was watching a, a really fascinating show. Uh, about slavery and about you know all the things that are going on right now in the world. Wow, this was really, really fascinating to learn more about that. I, I want to be more equipped to speak with people and, and to talk with them about it. What was that show called? So I'm trying to think of the show. It's, it was just it was a series and all I got I only got to watch a half an hour because I had some things to do. And I'm trying to think of the guy that actually did this, but I will get it to you. And I got to the tip of my tongue, and I just can't think of his name. But it was fascinating. It really, really was. A lot of time and effort was was put into this show. Yeah, I've been thinking about slavery a lot recently. I went to Charleston and visited the Slavery Museum a few months ago. And what I didn't realize, for example, is it was actually the British, you know, my ancestors and, and you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish that purchased the slaves from these African, you know, sellers, be it people on the island that were from Europe or actually the tribes. But then we would sell them to Americans. So then we came home with um, tobacco, I believe, was one of the big currencies. So clean hands and just a bunch of, you know, cigarettes, basically. And what I think the big, big thing that we miss about the whole slavery thing 
is that it only benefited the very few. So there were there were chiefs and whatever they were in these villages that were selling their fellow Africans to slave traders that were gaining money and power and whatever is that the, the currency was for them. And then you had, you know, the the Europeans that were gaining tobacco and then you had the the slave owners that then in the US were growing tobacco. But I think there's such a disconnect where you think, oh, all white people or all black people, whatever. And it's like, no, follow the money back. There were a very few people making money out of the, 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 the blood of so many others. And I think if we could grasp that even today, I mean, even cigarettes, how many people have died from cigarettes that made, they made a fortune on that right. weren't, you know, the, and it, so the other, whatever, 95% population had no idea slavery was even going on. And I wish we could kind of look at it that way versus, you know, rather than a kind of black, white, you know, whatever um, polarizing conversation that we seem to have at the moment. Right. Totally agree with you on that. Yep. Yep. But it was fascinating. If I can find some on the history channel, I, I like to learn about Roman times, you know, and, and that's a big thing. What can folks, what are you into? If you're into fishing, hey, watch some. There's, you can go on YouTube. There's so many cool things on there or funny things. We know that laughing helps get that cortisol out of you, you know, so look up funny videos and, and there's a ton of stuff out there. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. Well, I think Kevin Berthia. I think it would be amazing. Yes. And I know he'd be up for that. Brilliant. Let's make it happen. I would love to get him on. Yeah, that's he, he would do that. He'd like he'd love to help out. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. So then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you, um, what do you do to decompress? So I have my mindfulness. I don't do it all the time as I should, but I have my meditation. I have a very good support group. I have Bella, my little dog here. Uh, I do take time to get out. I'll be going deer hunting first time in, in decades, actually, uh, next week. So getting out with the folks and Finding what, what I like to do. You know, I do like to get out and I, I do like to travel. Um, business travel kind of sucks. I'll be honest with you. But going on vacations, we go to Vegas a couple times a year. We go up to Tahoe a couple times a year. So those things are important. I do like that. You know, day to day things, watching and seeing how do I feel? How am I doing? And knowing, I like to stay busy. I like doing this these types of things. And I like studying and that. But I also know I got two boys at my other house with my ex that I try to get down there every day and see how they're doing. So, you know, make a list of my responsibilities and what I need to do, but also have that time for me. Very, very important. Absolutely. And you said X and as a divorce is yet another layer of trauma that I can relate to. Yes. <laughs> Single answer. Well, we yes. Great right now. Um, she's at the house that I grew up in where my mom died. She's there with my two boys. My sister lives there. You know, I'm there almost every day. We have a very good relationship. So we're, we're good. Excellent. That's great to hear. All right. Well, then, um, very last question, then. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you online? Yeah. So my organization is Pivotal Points. It's www.pivotal-points.com. And my email is kevinbriggs at pivotal-points.com. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, I want to say thank you so much. I know, you know, obviously you tell your story a lot. Um, and I'm very mindful of the fact that, you know, there's only so many times you want to tell and relive some of these things, you know, before it becomes detrimental. But 
the the people listening, you know, I know they're here because we want to be part of the solution. We want to, you know, identify, as you said, what's in ourselves first so we can be the rescuer. But, um, you know, the, your perspective, I think, is so unique that, you know, I, I'm just so in awe of, of your career and so grateful that you took the time to come on the show and talk today. Well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you're taking care of yourself. Sounds like you've been through a lot and you have a lot to offer so many people by doing these types of things. This has been fantastic, sir. Thank you for having me.